This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Helen Mann, sitting in for Carol Off. Good evening, I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Five airstrikes, 25 dead, one huge new crisis. After U.S. attacks in Iraq and Syria, thousands of protesters stormed the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, throwing rocks, starting fires, and shouting death to America. Going, going, gone. He was supposed to be under house arrest for corporate corruption in Japan. So we'll find out how former auto exec and current billionaire Carlos Ghosn escaped to Lebanon. Tonight, we're going to worry like it's 1999. 20 years ago tonight, Y2 chaos loomed. So we go back to our chat with a hardware store owner who found himself unprepared for doomsday preppers. If you're stuck in Sandy's pants from Greece, well, sit tight. We'll hear from Olivia Newton-John about auctioning off her most famous outfit as part of our New Year's Eve review of the year in music stories. For crying out, wow, we'll rebroadcast our story about a nine-year-old boy whose excitement about classical music echoed through the concert hall and then around the world. And a bullet that bites you. In new research that, for some reason, they chose not to keep to themselves, scientists have discovered that crocodiles aren't just capable of moving fast, they can actually gallop. As it happens, the New Year's Eve edition, radio that guesses we all move a little faster at crunch time. It was a chaotic day at the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. Thousands of protesters and militia leaders stormed the embassy after U.S. airstrikes in Iraq and Syria killed 25 people, members of an Iran-backed militia called Kataib Hezbollah. Mustafa Salim was at the embassy today. He's a reporter with the Washington Post. We reached him in Baghdad, Iraq. Mustafa Salim, uh, describe for us what it looked like outside the U.S. Embassy compound there today. So it started this morning by the call of the Kataib Hezbollah, who called the people to join them, thousands of them. They marched towards the Furfur Green Zone, which uh, which is like a closed area. Thousands of them entered to the Green Zone and then went to the street where the U.S. Embassy is located. They uh, besieged the embassy. They set up tents with their leaders. So so the thousands of people were outside this compound protesting. What were they shouting? What were they doing? They were shouting death to America, death to Israel. What was it like to be in the middle of all of that? I mean, uh, I was a journalist doing my job. So I, I was just like taking notes and covering it. I wasn't taking any sides, of course. So I, I was just like watching. Of course. But I can, I, I can tell that the faces are really angry faces. I was concerned that it it might be escalated. You mentioned that people managed to get inside. This is a highly secure area. How did they manage to breach the barriers around the compound? It's because, I mean, the area is closed by checkpoints. Only only people with special access can reach. But there were thousands of people with their weapons and military vehicles. No one could stop them. There have been suggestions that it is possible Iraqi security may have looked the other way to allow these protesters to get access to the area. From my perspective, I mean, I'm from that area. I know the area. They didn't have any choice because you can't, I mean, the checkpoints are only five to six people. You can't face thousands of people with weapons. They didn't have any any other, other, other way. 
Let's uh, let's talk about how this all got started. It involves the killing of an American contractor working there. What were the circumstances around that death? Yeah, so a few days ago, there was uh, Katyosha rockets landed on K-1 airbase in Kirkuk, northern Iraq. It's a place for the Americans and the Iraqi army. The rockets, when landed, it's uh, injured injured the American contractor, then he died because of his injury, as well as a few federal police and a few American soldiers. That's why the Americans, through their information, they found out that the Qatar Hezbollah are the people who are responsible for that attack. According to the Iraqi Prime Minister, Ali al-Mahdi, he said in a call that he was informed that there will be a strike against Qatar Hezbollah because they were the people who were behind this attack. At 7 p.m. two days ago, the, the airstrike took place in Al-Qa'im on the Iraqi-Syrian borders, where there is a headquarter for two brigades of Qatar Hezbollah, killed around 25 people. And today, during the funeral, the angry militiaman breached the green zone, surrounded the embassy, burned uh, the wall of the embassy, burned the reception room of the embassy and the uh, towers. They broke the cameras, and now they, uh, they are still there stoning rockets to inside the embassy. They made a homemade Molotovs, which is like like a beer cannon, putting fuel in it and fire, light fire in it and throw it inside the embassy. So just to be clear, these American airstrikes that killed about 25 people, they were launched in retaliation for the death of this American contractor. Yes, yes. Why did the airstrike inspire so much anger? It's because it's killed large number of people, 25 people among them was a senior commander, and also it was the first time that the American publicly announced that they are the ones who did that strike. President Trump has tweeted saying that the protests are actually orchestrated by Iran and that they will be held fully responsible. I mean, given Qatayb Hezbollah is supported by Iran, is there any truth to the allegation that they're actually fueling this demonstration? That That is very accurate because also what I've seen when I was there they were raising the Khamenei pictures. They were graffiti on the wall of the embassy. Qasim Soleimani is our leader, who is the head of the Republican Guard, the RRG. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's controlled by Iran, and Iran are the ones who are behind these uh, demonstrations and what's happening around the embassy. They were raising pictures of the Iranian leadership. Yes, Khamenei, and they wrote on the uh, wall a graffiti like, uh, Soleimani is my leader. Iran is rejecting that accusation. They say that this is not their doing. I mean, uh, for a person on the ground, it's obvious that's what they're doing. In terms of what this says about the relations going on now between the, the government in Baghdad, Iran, and the United States, it has got itself in kind of a difficult situation, right? It is, it's allied with both the U.S. and Iran. And, of course, we know that the tensions between the U.S. and Iran are very high. What does this do to the government uh, in Baghdad? So even before this incident, the relationship between Iraq and the White House is going through its coldest period since three, And basically, Abdelmahdi is already resigned a month ago. So the relations, relationship with the Americans and Iran depends who's going to be the next commander-in-chief, who's going to be the next prime minister for Iran. So these protesters that were gathered outside the U.S. embassy, what do they want? They said that they will have an open sit-in until the departure of the uh, U.S. embassy from Iraq and also the departure of the whole U.S. troops from Iraq. And where is broader public sentiment on that? 
it's completely different. This sentence is only by the people who are pro-militias, pro-Iran. Like, for example, the protesters who has been protesting in Tahrir Square since October issued a statement saying that those people who are around the U.S. embassy, they don't represent us. So what do you think is going to happen to these protests in the days to come? I mean, they will continue their sit-in and uh, Iraqi forces, are, they can't do anything to them. So I think it's going to be solved by further, further discussions between the U.S. and Iran. All right. I'll stop you there, Mustafa Salim. Thank you very much for, for filling us in on what's happening. Thank you. Goodbye. Mustafa Salim is a reporter with The Washington Post. We reached him in Baghdad, Iraq. Carlos Ghosn says he isn't running from justice. The Japanese prosecutors he's run away from might disagree. Mr. Ghosn is the billionaire executive who used to head the carmakers Renault, Nissan, and Mitsubishi. He was picked up by Japanese officials in 2018 and charged with a series of corporate crimes. He was placed under house arrest after handing over a $10 million guarantee. But this morning, the Lebanese broadcaster Ricardo Karam tweeted to welcome Carlos Ghosn back to Beirut. And since then, there have been stories of a spectacular escape. We reached Ricardo Karam in the mountains above Beirut. Mr. Karam, you are among Carlos Ghosn's friends. Uh, how are you, his other friends and family, feeling about his escape from Japan? I think uh, this is a special moment and a special occasion. Not only friends and family members are celebrating and happy to embrace this is, I believe, a moment every person seeking uh, justice prevailing uh, is looking for. Nobody is above the law. However, for the law to uh, become tangible and to be practiced and to be executed, it has bylaws. And for those bylaws, I believe that uh, there is a legal system that we need to adopt and to abide by. And this Let me stop you there, though, because we're talking about the Japanese legal system. Uh, he was going through the regular channels there, Mr. Ghosn. Uh, he is now accused of fleeing justice by officials in that country and by others. Why did he not stand up and, and face the courts in Japan? Uh, I believe we have uh, been uh, following and witnessing for the past uh, 14 months a very harsh life patterns that nobody would eventually accept. Uh, it was more a psychological uh, uh, torture than a physical one. And uh, we have seen how Mr. Ghosn was living in a jail and how they moved him to a small apartment in a, a specific suburb and then before moving to a normal apartment. I think and we all think that somebody like Carlos Wilson who has brought the company to its pinnacle of success does not deserve such uh, behavior and treatment. Staying uh, in a small apartment in Japan though doesn't exactly sound like torture. 
uh, it wasn't actually, you know, the first apartment he lived in, and the conditions were very dire, and it was meant to be. And uh, we know, I think, in Canada or in the States or in, even in Lebanon, everybody is innocent until proved to be guilty. And with the lack of uh, a trial and the trial not to start, he is not guilty and he doesn't he doesn't deserve, you know, to be treated the way he was treated. I want to ask you about the circumstances around Mr. Ghosn's departure from Japan. A Lebanese foreign ministry official told Reuters that he returned to Lebanon legally using a French passport. But, you know, as far as we knew, his passports, because he was a citizen of various countries, were all held by Japan. So what are you able to say about how he got out of Japan? Uh, in a couple of days, there will be a press conference and uh, Mr. Hussain will be himself addressing the press and the public opinion and he will be talking about that aspect. I'm not at all entitled to tackle that issue or to talk about it. The Lebanese channel MTV is reporting that uh, Mr. Ghosn escaped using a team of covert operatives and that they used the cover of visiting Georgian musical troupe to smuggle him out of the country in a music instrument case. I mean, it just, it sounds like espionage. I'm just wondering, you know, is it fair to say at least, as his Japanese lawyer does, that he would have needed a lot of help to get out? Listen, I believe uh, many versions have been given so far, have been given so far. And uh, we have listened, we have read uh, a lot of uh, uh, those different versions. Sometimes it was the 007 adventure. Another time it was uh, a science fiction. Uh, however, I, I repeat and I reiterate that, that he is the only one who can give explanation to what has happened and how he was able to leave and to flee Japan and to arrive to Lebanon. For the moment, everything we've been listening to, everything we've been hearing is not accurate and cannot be accurate unless given by the person who has lived this specific journey. For those of us outside Lebanon, can you help us understand how significant a figure Carlos Ghosn is in that country? Carlos Hussain, as we call him here, and Carlos Ghosn, as he's called in uh, Francophone countries, is a source of inspiration. He has inspired millions of people all over the world, and specifically in our parts of the region. He is somebody we look up at. He is somebody who has embraced success and whose journey is something we all look up at. And in a region where hope is lacking, we need to look up at those role models because they boost us. You know, he continues, though, because he's left Japan, to have these serious allegations of corporate crimes hanging over his head. Does that not affect his future in Lebanon? These are accusations, as you said, and nothing uh, has been proved so far. I think now this is for the lawyers to talk about, and this is, you know, for courts and for a fair trial, an international one, that will give the final verdict and that will prove if uh, uh, Mr. Ghosn is innocent or is guilty. And as I've stated at the beginning of our call, nobody is above the law. But however, the trial needs to be just, and the legal system needs also to be a legal system adopting international standards. But the crimes are alleged 
to have taken place in Japan. Uh, you know, there's no extradition treaty, as I understand it, between Lebanon and Japan. So in what way would he ever face justice outside that country? Uh, we need to wait for him to talk and uh, to, to respond to, to all of those uh, accusations and to tell us what is the next step he will eventually undertake and how 2020 is going to look like. Mr. Karam, thank you for talking with us. My great pleasure. Thanks to you. Bye-bye. Ricardo Karam is a Lebanese broadcaster and friend of Carlos Ghosn's. We reached him outside Beirut. And for more on this story, go to our webpage at cbc.ca slash AIH. Crocodiles are scary predators. They can survive days without any food. They have one of the strongest bites in the world, and they have the creepy eyes of a supervillain about to burst into maniacal laughter. But veterinary scientists have recently discovered something else about crocodiles that makes them even scarier. When they reach their top speeds, some of them can gallop. The findings were recently published in the journal Scientific Reports. John Hutchinson is the lead researcher. He's also a professor of evolutionary biomechanics at the Royal Veterinary College in London. We reached him in Los Angeles. Professor Hutchinson, what does it look like when a crocodile gallops? Well, when a crocodile gallops, uh, they move their front legs together as a pair and then their hind legs together as a pair, kind of like a squirrel sort of hops across the, the ground and they go airborne, which is pretty cool. Like their hind limbs launch them off the ground, then they go airborne and land on their front legs, and their backbone bends up and down as they do that. So it's uh, very, very much like a mammal style of movement. Where does this kind of gait come from? That is the million-dollar question, really. Uh, the long-standing idea has been that it's a very old way of moving that uh, the ancient extinct ancestors of crocodiles had. Back in the Triassic period, about 230 million years ago, the ancestors of crocodiles looked very different. They were very long-legged, long, skinny legs, uh, about the size of a cat or not much bigger than that, and very terrestrial. They had not gone into the water really so much. So uh, they, they look like they were built to move quickly. And so it's thought that maybe they were using these galloping gates way back in the Triassic and crocodiles just inherited that and went back to the water, basically, and while retaining that kind of locomotion. So tell us how you put your theory to the test. Well, uh, we built a simple runway, just some walls uh, with a flat stretch of ground uh, between them and released crocodiles at one end and tried to (laughs) encourage them to move to the other end past some cameras. Really, really basic. How uh, do you encourage a crocodile to run? (laughs) Well, yeah, that's that's, uh, really challenging. Uh, We worked in the summer when it was really hot and humid, which the, the crocs like. Sometimes they would just go away uh, because they don't really want to be around people. Uh, Sometimes we need to to kind of nudge them to to get them to go away. But even then, about half the time or more, probably more than half, they would just sit there and do nothing or hiss or, um, yeah, just kind of be annoyed. Uh, They they were tough animals to work with, uh, hard hard to motivate. Um, 
Yes, but uh, this behavior of galloping is like an escape response. It's something that younger, smaller crocodiles will use to get away from something they don't like, especially danger. Anything unpredictable happen? Oh, man, all the time, yeah. (laughs) Crocodiles were very unpredictable. They'd climb over the walls of the runway. They'd burst through the walls. Uh, Once we had a a glass wall, and uh, immediately as we set that glass wall up, one of the big crocodiles just smashed it. Quite a few times when we didn't have any sort of glass wall there facing the cameras, the crocodiles would take a left turn as they went through the runway and charge the cameras. So we'd have to catch them uh, before they ran over the cameras. Uh, Yeah, lots of hijinks. So what are the top speeds that crocodiles can achieve? So they can hit about uh, five meters a second, which is about 11 miles per hour. Or what is that in kilometers per hour, 17 or something like that? I mean, that's slower than a human can run, but it's still pretty impressive for a reptile like that. And the interesting thing we found that we totally didn't expect is that while alligators and caimans cannot gallop, they can still use a trotting kind of gait, a more normal way of moving uh, at the same speed as a crocodile that's galloping. So it's uh, speed is not the benefit of galloping. It's something else probably to do with acceleration and maneuverability. Not all crocodiles gallop. Uh, which ones do? Yeah, it's just the members of the alligator and caiman family that, that do it, that, that one branch of the crocodile family tree, which is the cool remaining mystery is did they lose that ability from their ancestors or did they never have it? And we still don't know. The fossils suggest that they lost it, that it was always there in the ancestors and and alligators therefore have lost it for some reason. But then why? Why would they lose it? We don't know. You know that thing they tell you that if you're being chased by a a gator or a crocodile, Mm. you're supposed to run in a zigzag? Is that true? That'll work, but a straight line works uh, probably even better. I would just run away. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, The one way they could catch you is on rough terrain, slippery ground, going downhill. They'll just slide um, or use this galloping gate to go downhill. But generally, I think in most situations, we can get away from a croc. It's, It's when you're near the water's edge and they ambush you. They're ambush predators. So if they get the drop on you, then you're in trouble. They can accelerate quickly. But once they get going, they, they reach their top speed pretty fast, and, and we can outrun them in a few steps. Tell me why this discovery is important. How does it advance what we know about this species? Well, it tells us a lot about crocodilian natural history. We discovered this behavior in several species of, of crocodiles that were never known to do it before. We had five documentations of species out of the 20-odd species of crocodiles that had never been reported to do this before, so we know more about diversity of behavior in crocodilians. We showed how size, the size of a crocodile, affects the way they move, and that's that's important that bigger crocodiles are less athletic and eventually lose this ability to gallop. So it's mainly biology, natural history, although there are applications in, in other areas, like people are building alligator robots, robots that can move on land and in water. So uh, understanding how these kinds of uh, gates in uh, fast crocodiles work could could help us in, in that regard. But really, the, the purpose was to understand uh, natural history and evolution. And we're really happy about that. Well, Professor Hutchinson, I appreciate you telling us about your research. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye.
John Hutchinson is a professor of evolutionary biomechanics at the Royal Veterinary College in London. He was in Los Angeles. And if you want to see videos and pictures of the crocodiles, head to our website, cbc.ca slash AIH. Twenty years ago tonight, as the clock ticked closer and closer to midnight, we all held our breath. Would the lights go out? Would nuclear weapons accidentally be detonated? Would we lose all the friends we'd reconnected with on Classmates.com? Y2K was the legitimate fear that a coding glitch would cause computers everywhere to fail. And as it approached, people prepared to retreat. Which is why, in April of 1999, former As It Happens host Mary Lou Finley spoke with Galen Lehman, the vice president of his family business, Lehman's Hardware. It was in Ohio and catered to the Amish communities in the area, whose members don't believe in using electricity. And at the time, the business was finding it hard to stay stocked with supplies. From our archives, here's part of that conversation. Mr. Lehman, how many orders have you been getting for Y2K stuff? Well, I would say probably 50% of the calls we're getting right now are related to Y2K. And that all represents, I think, in my opinion, mostly business we wouldn't have had otherwise. Because many of these people don't really believe in, in what we believe in. Uh, that may not be true of all of them, but mo- you know, most of our customers and we ourselves believe that, the, that high technology doesn't always offer the best way out. And we look for the old-fashioned ways to do things because we think those ways are often better. Most of the people that are calling us now don't have a clue about how to use the equipment we're using and or we're selling, and so it makes it very difficult. Uh, you have to spend a lot of time explaining how to use, how to use that stuff. But they're convinced that uh, learning your old-fashioned ways might be just the ticket to getting through some crisis next January, right? That's probably true. Yeah. What are they buying? We've seen them. Uh, let's see, cook stoves, wood wood-fired cook stoves, kerosene lamps. We have non-electric refrigerators that run on propane gas. We also have a, one that runs on solar power, which is already sold out clear through 2000, although most of the other stuff we've been able to keep in stock. We're selling a lot of food processing equipment like uh, grain mills and uh, canning equipment and, and, and food drying equipment. Are you making any special preparations for January 2000? You know, we don't talk about that. Uh, <laughs> if, I, if I tell you I'm getting ready... Then everybody I know is going to come to my house if things are bad. <laughs> and if I tell you I'm That's not getting true, ready, I am. Yeah. <laughs> and if I tell you I'm not getting ready, then I'm minimizing something that may actually be a bad thing. I have no idea what's going to happen, but I think that it, it's always a good idea to be ready for anything. It's it's just it's so much it's such a valuable thing to be self reliant and to know that whatever happens, you'll be ready for it. That is such a valuable feeling of security. And, uh, and inner strength. That is, it's a good thing, I think. That was Galen Lehman, Vice President of Lehman's Hardware, speaking with our former host, Mary Lou Finley, in April of 1999. Mr. Lehman is Mennonite, so unlike his Amish neighbors, he uses some electrical gadgets, like phones. Twenty years ago tonight, the world was biting its nails in anticipation of a possible Y2K computer apocalypse. Right now, you're probably looking forward to whatever you're doing before midnight and to the possibility that 2020 will be slightly less dystopian than 2019 was. 
And while you're looking forward, we're going to look back at the past year in stories about music, starting with one of our proudest moments, the time we got Olivia Newton-John on the phone to talk about some pants she wore in 1978. In the final scene of Grease, Danny shows up dressed as a jock in a Squaresville cardigan. And then Sandy shows up with giant hair in a tight outfit demanding he shape up. So she wins him over by succumbing to pressure from both the jerky men and the jerky women. In terms of sexual politics, it's a disaster. But in terms of wardrobe, it's legendary. This year, Olivia Newton-John decided to auction off a whole bunch of stuff from her long career for charity including those pants and the leather jacket she wore in that scene. And in August, guest host Rosemary Barton talked to Ms. Newton-John about the auction and why she almost turned down the part of Sandy. Can can I ask you, would you fit into the pants now? Actually, I tried them on just for a giggle, and I wasn't going to tell anyone this, and I I could. Wow. Luckily, the zip is broken, so I I wasn't able to really test the full result. (laughs) Let's just say my legs got in there. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> Forty years later. Yeah, not bad, not bad. Um, you 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 have a recent book called "Don't Stop Believing," where you talk about how you almost didn't take that role of Sandy. I don't know. You felt like you were too old or something. What? Well, there were a lot, lot of reasons. I had made a movie in England in the '60s called "Tomorrow Double O," which was a science fiction musical group, <laughs> and there was a lot of. Sp- a lot of excitement and it didn't do anything. So then when my musical career took off, I was worried if I did another movie, maybe I'd have another disaster and it wouldn't be good for my career. So I was the reluctant Sandy. And then they sent John to meet me. And, you know, how can you resist that? Those blue eyes coming up your driveway. (laughs) (laughs) That's totally fair. (laughs) Was that that like a pivotal moment for you in your career, like in terms of getting exposure on a different level? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was having great success with my music at that time, but the film took me to another level, totally. So um, it's it's been an incredible journey, and I feel so lucky to be part of it. <laughs> Let's talk about where the proceeds for the auction are going to go. The, the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Wellness and Research Centre, which is in Australia, right? Yeah, it's in Melbourne, uh, Australia, where I grew up. And they asked me to lend my name to a cancer centre about, gosh, it's almost 15 years ago now. And my dream was to, you know, I didn't just want a cancer, my name on a cancer centre. So I said, if you put the word wellness in there, and we have a wellness centre as part of the hospital centre, then I would love to endorse it because to me that is just as important as any other kind of treatment. So we did that and it's been a wonderful success. And when people drive up to the centre and they see wellness in the name, it gives them a positive feeling, which is the whole point. And you you face cancer three times. You Right now you have breast cancer. And last year or earlier this year, I think you, you released that video where you where you had to address reports that you were on death's door. I, can I play a, a bit of that clip Please, for people yeah. that didn't hear it? All right, here, sure. here's, here's, here's you. <laughs> Happy New Year, everyone. This is Olivia Newton-John, and I just want to say that the, uh, the rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. Why did, you, <laughs> why did you feel you had to do that? Because it was getting out of control, and, you know, it was frightening people, and even friends and relatives across the world were getting anxious, and I thought, I just need to put this to bed. It's just silly, and it makes you, it's very distressing to read that you're dead. 
<laughs> you got to have a sense of humour about it. I know that's how they sell papers, but it was just it it went too far. So it was great because it nipped it in the bud, just direct and truthful. How, how have you managed to uh, even now with your third bout stay positive about about things? Really approach it from from a wellness perspective, I guess. Right? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I feel very grateful. I mean, every day is a gift for all of us, and none of us know what our life is going to be or when it's going to end. Just with a cancer diagnosis, of course, it brings it into the forefront, and and it's scary, but I just, you know, particularly being 70, and I've had an incredible life, and I intend to keep on living for a long time, um, I just am even more grateful every day. So, So how is your health right now, then? How would you, where are you in the treatment? I'm excellent. I'm only taking estrogen blockers. Um, I had some radiation when I was in Australia. That was past October. I broke my sacrum, so I was on a walker. I couldn't walk. Then I was on a walker, then a stick. Now I can... I played golf the other day for the first time. (laughs) Um, Just to go back to the auction, is there an item there? I know you said, you know, they were in your closet. You'll have pictures of them. But is there something there that is a little bit harder to give away or to sell than, than anything else? Um, no, because any of those that I've had second thoughts of, I've, I've got them back. <laughs> I had a bracelet that I just thought, well, I never wear this bracelet. I'll let it go. And then suddenly I started thinking about it and thought, no, I think I want to keep that for my daughter. So, you know, a couple of little things like that. But I think it's really important to let go of stuff. I mean, I had stuff in closets and no one's enjoying it. And much of the money is going to my cancer wellness research center. So it's a win-win. Well, listen, I would go for the pants if I thought I could fit into them. (laughs) (laughs) Nice to speak with you and uh, I'm glad glad you're feeling okay. Thank you. I'm feeling great. Thanks so much. Thank you. As it happens, guest host Rosemary Barton talking to Ms. Newton-John herself about her decision to auction off her outfit from Greece and hundreds of other items for charity. Incidentally, in early November, the founder of the shapewear brand Spanx bought those pants for $162,500 U.S. That's about 215000 Canadian. That's probably not quite enough to make you say, wow. I mean, what does nowadays? Unless you're shaking your head in disappointed disbelief as you say it, like, wow. Sometimes, though, someone else's wonderment can create some for you. Like in May, during a performance by an orchestra in Boston called the Haydn and Handel Society, they had just finished performing a piece by Mozart, and as the last echoes faded away and before the applause started, one audience member delivered a brief, extremely positive review of what he'd just heard. Carol spoke with orchestra CEO David Sneed about that moment. David, would you set the scene for us last Sunday afternoon? Sure. Well, it was the uh, final concert of our season at Symphony Hall in Boston. Uh, We're doing the Mozart Requiem. Concert had been sold out uh, long in advance, so a lot of excitement about it. And uh, the concert started off with uh, kind of a somber uh, opening piece by Mozart called the Masonic Funeral Music. And uh, so the place is packed, the lights go down, and this kind of somber, contemplative opener begins being conducted by our artistic director, Harry Christophers. Uh, the piece ends with this kind of swell of a major chord and in the strings, and it kind of fades away to nothing. And uh, Harry is holding, he's, he's finished conducting, and he's holding his pose up in the air, for the audience to kind of just have a couple of moments of silence. 
And we've seen that. We know that that's the convention, that the, you finish the piece and there's that moment of silence right. and then the, the applause. What happened? Right. So people are, are in the moment, you know, and, and then kind of out of, out of nowhere, up somewhere above me and behind me, this little boy says, wow, <laughs> with such, you know, joy and enthusiasm and, and people just broke up because it was expressing everything that they were feeling, but but it took a little boy to kind of capture the moment and say that. And of course, there's a recording of that moment, so let's have a listen to that. Okay, I'm getting goosebumps, so I can just imagine yeah. <laughs> what that was like. Wow. Well, this, and this, the, <laughs> this person sitting next to me, you know, said, that's great, classical music is alive and living for the next generation. And then we were talking as we were laughing, and he said, you know, I wish there was a recording of that. And I looked up, and there's microphones on stage. We're recording the, this concert for radio broadcast in the future. And uh, there we had the, the recording, yeah. Wow. So you are trying to find this kid. You put out a call. What, what, why, why do you want to locate him? Well, we want to talk to him uh, about the experience. We want to thank him personally. We want to make sure he has a recording of the moment. And we want to introduce him to the conductor, Harry Christopher, as Harry would like to speak with him and invite him back for another concert. David Sneed, CEO of Boston's Haydn and Handel Society, talking with Carol about the young mystery critic, who delivered an immediate, enthusiastic verdict during a performance in May. Well, that critic was nine at the time, so he didn't just go wandering into classical music concerts. His grandfather was with him. And after we learned the identity of Ronan Matten, we contacted his grandmother, Claire Matten, in New Hampshire. Claire, as you know, people all over the place have been going crazy about that captivating wow. What was your reaction when you first heard the recording? Oh, it just sent a chill down my spine. And it was kind of funny because the day of the concert, Stephen came home and he told the story about how Ronan gave out this big wow in the middle of all the silence. And it was just a funny story. It was another Ronan story. He's he's quite a guy. But when I heard the recording, oh my. <laughs> Stephen is, is your husband. He's grandpa. Yeah. And grandpa was taking Ronan to hear the Boston Symphony Hall to hear that concert. This, is a, this isn't this wasn't like 1812 Overture or something. It's not something a lot of bangs and bells and no. whistles and stuff. What, what do you think was about it that touched him so much? Well, I think that he picks up on the emotional tone of the music, you know, and he gets into it. He is involved when he's listening to music at home. He's dancing around and pretending to conduct. It it just moves him. It, it gets to him more than a lot of other things that we do with him to try to bring him out. When you say try to bring him out, what are you, what are you referring to? Well, he's on the autism spectrum. He's mostly nonverbal, so for him to emotionally express his feelings with a word was amazing. 
That's all the more touching and wonderful about this story that that's the case. So how often does he express himself in this way? We've maybe heard it four or five times. Wow. (laughs) Yep, yes, exactly, exactly. (laughs) How did you come to learn that the orchestra was actually looking for him? My sister saw an article in one of the local newspapers. She lives in Massachusetts. And she called me right away because I had told her the story, and she said, that's got to be Rohan. And she sent me the link to the article with the little sound clip, and I said, yeah, I'd recognize his voice anywhere. And I said, that's him. And then uh, there was an email address for David Sneed, who is the CEO, I guess. And I sent him an email, told him it was my grandson, and he got right back to me. He called me. He said that it was just the most wonderful thing that's happened to him in the 40 years that he's been with H&H Society. And that was emotional. You know, the the whole week has been a roller coaster ride. So what has he offered? Well, what he told me was that the conductor uh, that night has gone back to England, which is his home, but he will be back in October. And at that time, they're going to invite Ronan and the family to go back to Symphony Hall and for Ronan to meet the conductor and some of the musicians and then give the family a front row seat to the show. And what will that mean for Ronan, do you think? Ronan will be very excited. We can tell him ahead of time that we're going back to the symphony, but to tell him he's going to meet the conductor, I don't think that'll really click with him until he's there and actually meeting him and maybe touching his on this one, you know, that's what will, that's what will thrill him. Claire Matten speaking with Carol in May about her grandson Ronan. And in October, Ronan did go back to Symphony Hall and meet the conductor. He touched the instruments, kicked his feet on the floor, and sang along with the band. Well, that is an overly simplistic description of what John Mann did. But over more than 30 years as the magnetic frontman for the band Spirit of the West, he did kick and stomp and jump and write songs and sing them. Then in 2014, he was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's. It's testament to Mr. Mann's astonishing commitment that the band managed a farewell tour, during which the once-kinetic singer relied on an iPad for the lyrics. John Mann died on November 20th. And the next day, Carol spoke with the co-founder of Spirit of the West, Jeffrey Kelly, about his longtime friend and partner in crime. Can you tell us about your first hello? What are your first memories of John? Oh, boy. Well, my wife was the one who sort of brought John into my life. They were, they were together in, in theater school, and, and uh, I was playing a little bit of music with uh, uh, the other original band member, Jake Knudsen. And she said, boy, you ought to hear this, this guy, John Mann, who's in my one of my classes, uh, he's an amazing singer, and we were so impressed by, by his voice and his energy, and, and at that time, he was very influenced by people like Stan Rogers. He loved the, the East Coast sound, but there was something about him, and we just all connected really well. Suddenly, we were three, and we got a little gig up at Whistler playing outside in the square, and that was kind of how it very innocently began, but right from the word go, John brought a certain kind of energy that... Um, we recognize as being something that would really make us unique. He was like a folk singer, but a punk rocker at the same time, <laughs> if you can kind of imagine that combination. Yeah. His, his, his 
frenetic energy just rubbed off on all of us. That's the most extraordinary, and no one can forget that when you see how oh, he God. moves, and just to say it's energy is to understate what a force he was on yeah. stage. Yeah, and I just, heard, I just heard Grant Lawrence on the CBC saying that John embra- seemed to embrace that, that notion of dance like no one's watching, <laughs> and he, he did, he just with, with reckless abandon, and regardless of what kind of music it was, he wasn't a delicate dancer, that's for sure, but he had his own <laughs> style, and he just couldn't help himself. <laughs> now, in 2014, John and the band went public with his diagnosis of early-onset mm-hmm. Alzheimer's. How difficult was it to go public with that, for him and for all of you? Oh, it was... We, we put a lot of thought into how to go about it, and um, we felt at a certain point we needed to tell people because we didn't want John to feel embarrassed about maybe messing up a song or people wondering, well, why, why did he do that, or why is this happening, and... We felt it was the, the right thing to do, and then eventually it got to the point where it just became too much for him, so we wrapped it up with a few great shows, one of which was Massey Hall, where John was just at his absolute best. He, For some reason, for that show, he he rallied, and he, he I think he seemed to know the importance of it. We'd always wanted to play there, and we finally had our chance, and John was such a, a champ that night, and I was so proud of him because it must have taken so much courage to walk out on stage just kind of not knowing if your mind would let you down or not. And uh, he, he was courageous right till the, till the very end of his performing career, for sure. Is there a moment or a particular story that speaks to who John was for you? What did you hold dear? Oh, boy. There, there's so many. One of, the, one of the more humorous moments was uh, at a certain point in the 90s, I think we really felt like we were having to play way too much. And... Um, I remember being on a ferry with John talking about this and saying, I think we should really all find some different things to do and have spirit play way less. And I said to Johnny, you know, what do you, what do you think you would do if, if we kind of back off of the, of the band? And, and he goes, well, I'm not really sure, but I'd be, I'd be fine as long as it involves applause. <laughs> was, was his line. And, mm-hmm. and he did exactly that. He went back into theater and he went back into starring in musicals and movies and television shows. He had a, an amazing second career as an actor, but I always loved that line about the applause. I thought it was very John and very funny. That was Jeffrey Kelly, co-founder of Spirit of the West, speaking to Carol about his friend John Mann. The singer, frontman, and actor died on November 20th of complications related to early-onset Alzheimer's. Mr. Mann was 57. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the whole show on the web. Just go to cbc.ca slash AIH and follow the links to our online archive. Thank you for listening. I'm Helen Mann. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.